0: Well, one of my seminary professors was known for his willingness to adopt kids, specifically kids in hard situations. And the reality is the kids that came into his family, just regardless of their sometimes horrific past, did so well and blossomed in every way that he ended up adopting more kids than he ever anticipated because people aware of needs would call him and literally ask him to come and take this child. Well, on one such occasion, after he and his wife picked up a young man, around seven or eight, I don't remember the exact age, now their son, they're driving home and... standard homeschool 15-passenger van. (laughs) And the dad asks him, Hey, what's your favorite sport? And he said, football. And he said, football, that's great, but that's not your favorite sport. He said, it's not? He said, oh no, football is not your favorite sport. He said, but I... I, but, but football is my favorite sport. And at that point, the dad turned around to him and he said, Son, you're part of our family now. Our favorite sport is baseball. Your favorite sport is now baseball. So the son kind of thought about it for a minute. Can my second favorite sport be football? And he said, Now you're talking. (laughs) Now, whether that young man knew it or not, what was going on right there is the outworking of a new reality. You see, he belongs to a new family, and along with that new family come new ways of life. So he's got new allegiances, he's got new relationships, he's got new priorities, he's got new passions, he's got a new identity. And so it is with us. When we become Christians, we become part of the family of God. And everything changes. We have a new way of life. We have new priorities. We have new passions. We have new pursuits. We have a new identity. And why I'm talking about this is because we're at a massive shift In Paul's letter to the Ephesians. Today we transition out of chapters 1 through 3, focused on instruction, focused on what God has done, and we transition into chapters 4 through 6, focused on exhortation, focused on how we're to respond to what God has done. And here's what we see right out of the gate. If Jesus were in the van this morning and He were to ask any one of us, Son, daughter, what is it that you are eager to do when we get home? You might answer a lot of different ways. Maybe I'm eager to pursue excellence at work. Maybe I'm eager for good food. I'm a foodie. Maybe I'm eager to get outside and enjoy the Vermont summer. And to all of that, Jesus would lean over and he would say, that is great. But that is not what you are eager to do, son. And as you look at him quizzically, he would say, son, daughter, what you are eager to do is maintain the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. Now, let me ask you a question. Are you eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace? Does that desire resonate with you? Is that desire in the background as you interact with your brothers and sisters? Is that desire a governor on your lips and a motivator deep down in your heart? This morning, I want to persuade you that this is something you must desire and pursue. And I want to show you how to do it and the basis for it. So let's jump in. We're going to turn to Ephesians chapter 4. And we're going to read verses 1 through 6. Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 through 6. I, therefore, a prisoner of the Lord... One God and Father of us all, who is over all and through all and in all. Three movements of our text this morning. First, the gospel compels us to live in a certain way. Second, one of our highest priorities is to be eager to maintain unity in the church. And then third, the basis of our unity is God himself. If you just have your Bibles open, if you have a bulletin open, that'll help you follow along. We're just going to look at each one. Let's look at the first. Verse 1 starts differently than how Paul's written so far. I therefore a prisoner of the Lord urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. Now do you know what's so different about this sentence than anything we've seen so far? It's a call to do something. I urge you walk in a manner worthy. That's a that's a call to action. The only thing Paul has commanded so far in Ephesians, I don't know if you've noticed this, the only thing that he's commanded us to do so far in Ephesians is to remember. Remember our lost state before Christ. A command to remember is one thing. I get that. A command to walk is another. Do you get that? One is a reflection, one is a soaking in something, the other is an action, the other is a doing of something. And this is the heart of this walk-worthy command. It's, it's, a, it's a call to action, and it's a call to more than just one-time action. Walk-worthy gets at the heart of a way of life. So in the Bible... The way someone walks is not actually the way he pronates, as though you need to go and get those special shoes to where you walk the right way. Okay? That's not what Paul's talking about. In the Bible, when he says walk worthy, he's calling you to live a certain way. And that's why he returns to this again and again in the latter half of this book, 417. Now this I say, and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles walk. Five one. Be imitators of God as beloved children and Walk in love as Christ loved us. Five seven. Walk as children of the light. 5.15. Look carefully then how you walk. Not as unwise, but as wise. So we've moved from reflection to action. Right? We've moved from the indicative, what God has done... And we've moved to the imperative, what we're to do. We've moved from mind-stretching theology, one through three, as Mount Everest grandeur-like theology, to -to down-to-earth, concrete implications of that theology to everyday life. And please notice, brothers and sisters, this is not a suggestion. So Paul doesn't say, you know, I'd like to have a conversation with you about something. Or, hey, as it relates to your life, here is just a couple of things that you might consider. No, this is an urgent, apostolic appeal regarding our lives. I urge you. And then, what's the appeal based on? Well, it's all bound up in that small word with big impact, therefore. I therefore urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. That, therefore, brothers and sisters, reaches way back. (laughs) And it just grabs the whole of chapters 1 through 3 and it puts it on the table and it says, This is the basis of my appeal to you. Now, just a refresher, what's chapters 1 through 3 about? It's about the glorious realities bound up in the gospel. Our personal redemption, the forgiveness of our sins, the indwelling of the Spirit of God, that glorious future inheritance. And it's not just about our personal salvation, it's about our new family. There's this huge emphasis on the church as family created by the gospel. Jesus brings everybody together, regardless of their background, their education or or the color of their skin or regardless of whether they're right or left politically he he brings us all into his family and he sets us all on the same footing and he calls us his church and he says through you through my family i'm going to declare my glory not only to the unbelieving world but even to the cosmic powers of darkness The way you live underneath my authority is going to proclaim to a very divided world that I am a united God and it's going to proclaim it. Oh, Paul says, I have been showing you what glorious things God has done in the gospel and now I need to show you how this has massive implications for your life. God in His grace has called you and now you have got to live worthy of that call. And the clanging of Paul's chains reminds us that he is not a do-as-I-say-but-not-as-I-do type of guy. You guys know about guys in sports that can't, like, make it? You know, what do they do? They coach. (laughs) Or what do I do when I'm with my kids and I act in a way inconsistent than what I speak? I just say, do as I say, not as I do. Right? Well, that's not Paul. Ringing out just as loud as his exhortation is the rattling of his chains. I, therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk worthy. Remember why Paul was in chains. Paul was in chains because the gospel taught him that his life is not his own. The gospel taught him that he was bought with a price. The gospel taught him that the precious blood of Christ is what bought his forgiveness. And so Paul's loyalty and Paul's obedience is to Jesus above everything else, no matter the cost. That's why he's in prison. Because he counted the cost and he said, Jesus is worth it no matter what. And whether or not it lands us in prison, the point remains. The gospel has massive implications for our lives. The gospel compels us to live a certain way. You know this, but just remember. The gospel isn't just something we believe in. It's something we live out. So what does that look like? Well, it's given substance in verses 2 through 3. Just look at those with me again. With all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love... Eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. There it is. The eagerness that God wants us to be about. What are we eager for? Unity in the church. Unity in the family of God. That family of different people created by His blood. Unity. That's what we're eager for. Now, how do we go about it? Well, through the virtues listed here. Through humility. The single greatest threat to unity is pride. And the single greatest asset for unity is humility. And I think the single greatest example of humility is Jesus. Let me just read for you Philippians chapter 2. I think Philippians chapter 2 just kind of helps us get a hold on unity better. You don't have to turn there. I'm just going to tease out a couple of things from Philippians 2, 1 and following. Paul says this there, he says, If there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, and his argument is basically, yeah, there is those things. Of course there are those things. Of course there's comfort and and all of that. He says, so if there is these things, which there is, number two, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. So notice Paul's talking about unity here too. And then he says, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he emptied himself. By taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. It's been said that humility is not thinking less of yourself. It's it's thinking of yourself less. Have you ever heard that? Humility is not thinking less of yourself. Humility is thinking of yourself less. That's not entirely expansive, of course not, but that's not a bad way to think about it, brothers and sisters. Jesus is our example, right? And and he is our example, and and, and how did he manifest our humility? Well, by focusing himself on the well-being of others. Jesus was not priority number one in his mind. Do you realize that? Priority number one for Jesus was the spiritual well-being of others. So why did Jesus leave the glories of heaven for the grime of the cattle stall? Because he wasn't focused on himself, but on the interests of others. So why did Jesus humble himself to the point of death on a cross? Because he wasn't focused on himself, but on the interests of others. This then forms the basis of Paul's appeal. In humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Let each one of you look not only to his own interests, but to the interests of others. So you see, humility is an orientation away from self and it's towards others. So humility isn't focused on my rights, my privileges, the honor and respect I'm due. In the context of relationships in the church, humility is thinking more about others than about yourself. Can't you see immediately how this would be so Helpful in unity. Humility says, I want to reach out to my brothers and sisters. Not, why haven't my brothers and sisters reached out to me? Humility says, I want to find out what my brothers and sisters think about this. Not, I want to tell my brothers and sisters what I think about this. In the context of conversations, whether it's about political matters, parenting styles, secondary theological matters, humility says, I want to understand really where my brothers and sisters are coming from. Not, I want to make sure that my brothers and sisters know I'm right and I'm going to pounce on anything they say that I might be able to pounce on. Humility says, I care about you. It says, I'm thinking about you. It says, I want what's best for you. Humility is others-oriented. So walk worthily through humility. Next, walk worthy through gentleness. The old word for this, and if you're in the King James, you see it there. The old word for this was meekness. Gentleness, meekness, same thing. But when we think meek, it's possible that we think of a weak person. Okay? Okay? It's possible we think about a person who's just easily imposed on. Maybe a a doormat relationally, we might say. That's not what this word gets at at all. The gist of gentleness is strength under control. John Stott points out how some use this word in reference to domesticated animals. I just want you to consider for just a minute a well-trained horse. If you have ever stood by... A well-trained horse, you know that weakness is not a term appropriate to that animal. Okay? That animal has incredible strength. When those muscles twitch, is it not amazing and powerful? Yet when that animal is well-trained, it is extremely gentle. Its power is under control. It's got a tempered spirit. It's not running free. It's not out of control. So it's under control. So this term doesn't imply weakness. It implies self-control and a tempered spirit. And this is Jesus. Jesus wasn't weak. Jesus was gentle. Come to me, all you who are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon me and learn from me. How does he describe himself? For I am what? Gentle and lowly in heart. So here's the import for us here. Gentleness is a self-controlled spirit on our part that isn't reactionary. Gentleness doesn't blow up at people when they say or do something wrong. Gentleness isn't harsh with people. Gentleness isn't like that dog whose hackles are easily raised. Gentleness is like Jesus. A self-controlled, tempered spirit. Gentleness is essential for maintaining unity, and so too is patience. So, we've got kids in the room. Who loves fireworks? Just raise your hand. And adults, come on, confess it. All right. Looks like we might be able to get away with a firework show sometime and have people show up. I love fireworks. Fireworks are a blast. But you know what's really important when it comes to fireworks? Long fuses. Long fuses, very, very important. Long fuses mean a long time before an explosion. Are you listening to me, Levi? (laughs) Short fuses means no time before an explosion. Long fuses means you have a hand. Short fuses means somebody else is opening up your ketchup bottles because you no longer have a hand. We need long fuses. And this is how God is. You remember how God described himself? Exodus 34, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger. Same word, patience. Our God is patient. He's slow to anger. He has a long fuse. And this is how our God relates to us, 1 Timothy 1.16. But I receive mercy for this reason, Paul says, that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience. As an example to those who are to believe in Him for eternal life. 1 Peter 3.9 The Lord is not slow to fulfill His promise, as some of you count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but all should come to repentance. Praise God that our God is a patient God. Amen? Are we patient? Am I patient? Sometimes. Are you patient? Are you patient with your brothers and sisters who are aggravating? I'm patient when they're not aggravating. That means that not you're not necessarily patient, just means they're not aggravating. <laughs> are you patient with your brothers and sisters when they don't follow through? Are you patient with your brothers and sisters when they live out of step with God's word? Are you just patient with your brothers and sisters? Do you have a long fuse? Do you have a short fuse? To preserve unity, we've got to be patient with one another. And we've also got to forbear one another. Patience and forbearance are like a a beautiful one-two punch. Do you know what forbearance means? (laughs) It's really simple. It means to put up with. That's what it means. Patience and forbearance. They go together. The call to forbear with one another is a call to put up with one another. And this is what Jesus does with us. Speaking of his own disciples, he says in Matthew 17, How long am I to bear with you? (laughs) Brothers and sisters, we're to put up with each other. It sounds really simple. It sounds very unspiritual, but we're to put up with each other. We're to bear with one another's faults and foibles and failings and oddities and opinions. We are to bear with one another. This is such a practical word, right? And it makes so much sense because if the church is comprised of saved sinners who are all in the process of sanctification, then that means we've all still got a long way to go and there's going to be plenty that we need to put up with. Amen? Or ouch. But let's take it further. Let's take it out of the realm of growth and Christ-likeness. I think we could all give an amen or an ouch to that. And let's just put it in the realm of personalities and opinions and interests. Brothers and sisters, this assumes that we're going to be different and that we're going to come at things differently, and those differences aren't to divide us. For instance, in our congregation right now, there are differing thoughts and approaches to politics, to racial tensions in our country. To educational philosophies, to parenting styles, and all of that is fine, it's fine. We want to be able to reason about these things. We want to be able to talk through these things. But these things are secondary to the unity that we have in the gospel. And we want to hold them both intellectually and in practice as such. We don't want to let our differences in secondary things sidetrack our unity in primary things. So we want to forbear one another's differences. And not in just some type of grin and bear it way. So I I know that Paul says we bear with one another. And I know that I said bear with means put up with. But Paul says we bear with one another how? In love. We bear with one another with deep and genuine and committed love. Why? Because we're members of the same body. Because we're brothers and sisters in Christ. Because above all, above our personality, above our professions, above our interests, above our stages in life, above all, we're brothers and sisters in Christ, and we're members of the same body. Therefore, we have a fundamental unity, we have a fundamental bond that is above and beyond all of that stuff. And that's why Paul says, notice, that we aren't eager to create unity. We are simply eager to maintain unity. We don't create our unity. We have been given our unity by virtue of our common conversion to our common Savior, Jesus Christ. We have been given unity by virtue of the fact that no matter who we are or where we've come from or what we have done, we have been adopted by the same Father and brought into the same family. That's Ephesians chapter 3. Which is why Paul ends the way he does. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Anybody notice how many times the word yet one was used there? Seven times. You think Paul's trying to drive home a point about unity? I do. There's something a bit more subtle that's equally powerful and true. The Trinity is here. There is one body and one Spirit. That's the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit creates the one body of Christ. There is one Lord, one faith, one baptism. One Lord in context is certainly the Lord Jesus Christ, in whom we place our faith and into whose name we're baptized. And there is one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. The Part of the motivation for our ministry, or for our unity rather, is the Trinity, God Himself. Now two things I don't want you to miss here. Number one, the Trinity is the best example possible of unity within diversity. The Trinity is the best example possible of unity within Within diversity, three persons of the Godhead, Father, Son, Spirit, different persons, yet one God. And different roles as we look throughout the course of redemptive history. The Father plans, the Son accomplishes, the Spirit sent out to seal. But they're all accomplishing one great end, aren't they? Bringing the many Into the one great body of Christ, the church. God himself is the basis for unity amidst diversity. That's number one. And number two, unity is not unity at all costs. So the unity we're called to is not unity for unity's sake. The unity we have first is theological. Notice how decisive the Bible is about the exclusiveness of Christianity. There is one body created by one spirit. And only those who have confessed the name of the one Lord Jesus Christ are part of this body, the church. What am I saying? I'm saying that unity is never at the expense of the truth. We are unified in the truth. And the truth is the gospel. And we treasure that truth above all because it's brought us near to God and it's brought us near to one another. And by the way, one last side note, unity doesn't mean that we never confront one another either. I think you'll remember in Galatians that Paul confronted Peter in the presence of all when his actions weren't in keeping with the gospel and threatened the unity of the church. He was acting one way around Gentiles, but another way when the Jews came around. Paul saw that his, keeping, his actions weren't in keeping with the unity that we're called to in the gospel, and so he rebuked him in the presence of all. Unity doesn't mean we never correct one another, but our unity is in the gospel. So I just want to come back to my question. What are you eager for? Brothers and sisters, I hope that you are eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. I hope you are eager for that. And if you're not, well then you need to repent. You need to repent. Because this is what the Lord calls you to. The Lord Jesus wants His church to be a display of heaven to be a display of all the different people coming together under His banner in mutual love for Him and one another. That's where we're going and that's what He displays to the world through us, His church. So we don't have an option here. We've got to be eager to do this. And if we're not, then we're out of step with God's Word. And this is why we need, God, need God's Word it's so that we can be corrected even down to the level of our desires. So what business might you need to do with God this morning? If you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, let me just say that this is actually what you long for. You you long for, for commonness. You long for community. You long for unity with a tribe. And you long for, for, for some thing that's, that's more firm and steady and sure. You long for some form of truth. You, you want what's real and what's enduring. And you do. Friend, all of this is given to you through Jesus. Jesus is the truth. Jesus is real. Jesus rose from the dead. Jesus is seated at the right hand of God. He died and rose so that sinners like you could not only be forgiven, but be given a community, a people, a tribe, a church. But be clear. Coming to Jesus by faith means more than believing in something. It means living something, right? Ephesians 1 through 3, transitions to Ephesians 4, and walking worthy. The gospel doesn't just call us to believe, it calls us to live in light. And so, dear ones, dear brothers, and dear sisters, I turn to you. Are you eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace? Some of you might need to do business with the Lord on just different levels. So maybe you need to do business with the Lord at a, I'd I'd put it at a theological level. Maybe you need to deal with the fact that you're actually more anxious about the direction of the country than you are about the unity of the Church of Jesus Christ. Or maybe you need to deal with the fact that you would rather be close to a non-Christian who's more like you politically than a Christian in the church who's not like you politically or maybe you need to deal with the fact that maybe during the pandemic you might have been more concerned about your personal rights and freedoms than you were about how you were relating to your brothers and sisters in Christ here at this very church what those things reveal friends are misplaced priorities Uh, Priorities more focused on the fading kingdoms of this world instead of the unfading kingdom of Christ which is proclaimed as we live underneath the Lordship of Jesus Christ together in the church. Now be clear, am I saying that those things don't matter? No, of course they matter. But what Christ is doing in His church matters a whole heck of a lot more. And we should care about that a whole heck of a lot more. The best thing some of you could do right now for your own soul and for the life of the church is to turn off the news, get off social media, open your Bible, and then go call your brother or sister in Christ and get a cup of coffee. Let me repeat that. The best thing some of you could do right now for your own soul and for the life of the church is to turn off the news, get off social media, open your Bible, and then call your brother and sister in Christ and go get a cup of coffee. And then, practice these virtues when you're with them and when you think about them. Humility, gentleness, patience, loving forbearance. You know, if, if, if those things are top of mind for us, brothers and sisters, the, the unity that we have here at Redeeming Grace Church is... It's just going to flourish. And I thank God that overall, I believe we are a unified church. I think we've come through the pandemic in flying colors overall. And I'm so proud of you and thankful for you, not in some human sense, but in, in, in every right and godly way. I feel like Paul longing for his churches and burdened for his churches. I've been burdened for you, and I think you've done pretty well. And I'm glad. And I just want us to continue in these things. And I know what's necessary to continue in these things is to give ourselves to these virtues. Humility. Do you think more about the well-being of others than you do yourself? Gentleness. Do you have a self-controlled and tempered spirit? Strength under control. Patience. Do you have a long fuse and loving forbearance because we're all different but all saved by the blood of the Lamb and reconciled together? Are you clear that secondary matters should be secondary matters and in the primary things we're fundamentally unified? I think you are want you to keep moving in that direction. Do you know how a rock wall is built? A rock wall is built stone by stone, stone by stone, stone by stone. I'm an incredible engineer. <laughs> and that's kind of how unity is either built or torn down, is stone by stone, interaction by interaction. Conversation by conversation. Phone call by phone call. Text by text. Email by email. Thought by thought. In how we live and breathe and relate to one another, if we are thinking about humility, gentleness, patience, and loving forbearance, it will be like fortifying the wall of humility such that the flaming arts, darts of the wicked one will have no sway here. But if we don't, then it will be like opening ourselves up to the barrage of the world and the flesh and the devil such that our unity could give way. Let's give ourselves to these things, brothers and sisters. Let's love Jesus Christ above everything and make sure that our allegiance is to Him above all and then let's practice humility, gentleness, patience, and loving forbearance. Pray with me. Father in heaven, we are a people redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. And we love to proclaim it. May we proclaim it, Father, with our lips and our lives. And may the way in which we relate to one another be a testimony to the world and to the cosmic powers of darkness that Jesus is king. That Jesus is reigning over his church. And that the kingdom is coming. For your glory, for our good, we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.